0: Hey, everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Conf. Uh, We just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another JS story. This week, we have Mark Nadal. Uh, Mark, do you want to give us a brief introduction?
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Nadal. I run Gun, which is an open source Firebase. I love the open source community. That's what I focus on. And I'm here to share my story of how I got into the world of programming, because as I will disclose later, I'm actually kind of scared of programming.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely have to dig into that. Um, You were on episode 232 of JavaScript Jabber, which was back in October of 2016. So not that long ago as this comes out, a few months. Um, and yeah, I, I already sent you the series of questions I'm going to ask. So let's just dive in. The first question is, how did you get into programming?
1: So first off, uh, thanks for having me on the show again. I really appreciate it. It's a huge honor. In terms of getting into programming, so my backstory is that I was originally working on a mathematics theorem. I'd spent three years developing a model for it. And once I had it, I frustratingly found out that it'd take me like 20 minutes to solve a really basic problem. <laughs> so I was like, okay, come on, I can do better than this. If, if I could just spin up like a ton of computers simultaneously, I could solve thousands of these problems near the instantaneously. So I realized that presented another problem which was I actually needed to figure out how to program. (laughs) And I thought, okay, if I've been doing enough work in logic and mathematics and philosophy in general, that, I mean, come on, programming is like the closest cousin to those things you could possibly imagine. So it should be easy to get into. But I regretfully say that no programming has been a lot more about implementation specific details and syntax errors than necessarily pure logic. So That's kind of where I started to become a little bit scared of programming.
0: Yeah, the the theoretical uh, mathematical part is what we call computer science. (laughs) (laughs) And then the actual work, yeah, that's another thing sometimes.
1: Yeah. So the funny thing is it kind of became increasingly addictive, as I'm sure most people have discovered who are getting into programming, that slowly it takes over your life. And I start realizing, hmm, you know, academics kind of seems boring. Like I don't want to have to go through like four levels of degrees before I can actually start writing my own original thinking. You know, you have to get your bachelor's and you have to get your, your master's. Then finally, like once you're after your PhD, you could like start publishing your own uh, original thinking. I was like, okay, that sounds a little depressing. I'm not going to get to actually work on my math theorems for like maybe 20 years from now. But if, I go into programming more rather than maybe showing the computer science and the theoretical soundness, which should be there, but I can show the practical impacts of these ideas more quickly into a very large audience if I start a startup. So I kind of got sucked into the startup world and the programming world. And that's kind of where I'm at now in my journey.
0: Gotcha. Now I remember, and I'm curious where this fits into your journey before I ask the next question I remember you coming to the Utah JS meetup and talking about all this database stuff and you were all excited about it. And, um, but at the same time, I also remember you saying, I'm really new to this and you really were new to programming or at least to JavaScript. Uh, Where does that fit into this picture?
1: Like all novices, like all people who are getting into programming and it turns out like all experienced programmers, you're always new to programming and I'm going to go into this side rant really quickly first before I directly answer the question, which is programming is about solving things that haven't been solved before. Because unlike, let's say, if you work at McDonald's and you're flipping burgers, there's an instruction that you're supposed to follow, and you can follow that day in, day out. Most jobs are this way. But programming, we write the instructions. Oftentimes, maybe somebody's written a framework or a library for us to use, but Ultimately, our career or job or how we're making money comes back to problem solving and problem solving demolishes even the giants of whether it's mathematics or computer programming or startups, because you are a novice every single time. So I'd argue this isn't just, you know, my story back when I showed up at Utah JS saying that, you know, I'm a beginner, I'm a novice, or I'm first getting into these things. It's it's a lot of people who are getting into the community as well as us more experienced developers. So back then um, I was transitioning from a previous startup I was working on called Excelsior, which was a collaborative web design tool into needing to build more powerful lower level tools like a database. Um, So it's kind of frightening because you're moving from like just building a web app right into building like a, a foundational technology, a, a library versus maybe a framework or just a web application. And that's intimidating because you then have to learn a whole new set of skills.
0: Right. It's kind of like saying, I'm not getting the kind of power I need, so I'm going to go build a power plant. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) And this is coming from somebody who's not an expert at building a power plant, but you realize that, you know, if, so the, the startup I was working on, the collaborative web design tool Excelsior, we got in a burst of traffic from some, I think, a Wall Street Journal post on us, and there was only like three hundred users that hit our website. But our server crashed, our database caught on fire, and everything blew up in our face. Right, so like it wasn't that much traffic, but everything went wrong. Uh, like the cliche Silicon Valley thing of you get traffic and your servers just melt. And I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, I'm just now a front end web design guy. Like I can figure out how to get JavaScript hooked up to a Node.js backend and and just send messages around. But if my database can't even handle, you know, like 300 users hitting the site and signing up and I have to wake up at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night and put out fires, I don't want to be waking up at 3 a.m. with this type of stress there has to be something better. And that's kind of when my brain clicked and was like, hey, well, I've worked on all these mathematical computer science problems before. Um, Why don't I just take that thinking that I have and apply it to databases?
0: Gotcha. I think we're heading into that next question. And that's the question of how did you get into JavaScript?
1: So I was into JavaScript before um, getting into databases. Uh, (laughs) Building a database in JavaScript is somewhat controversial and untraditional. So I'll, I'll leave that for a, a later oh, oh, I thought discussion. You were nuts. <laughs> good, good, good. It's the outsider thinking. It's the novice thinking that says, hey, I know X from what I used to do before. Can I apply it to Y? Um, and then people laugh at you. But eventually over time, they, they come to take you a little bit more seriously. Or at least they see how many GitHub stars or that you have, and they're like, oh, well, maybe this person might be crazy, but they do have an interesting idea. Um, I want to go into that just a little bit more detailed first, which is the most important thing that we can do, I think, whether it's in the tech industry or in other industries, is to experiment with new ideas, even if they're wrong, right? A large part of science and mathematics is just experimenting and trying. So if you're a newcomer and you feel stupid, don't let that stupidity, you know, overcome you just be confident with the quasi ideas that you have and play with them. experiment with them, try them. And you might discover you've reinvented the wheel. You might discover that you've uh, you're the Elon Musk and you've built a new rocket that's you know so much better than previous rockets, or you might discover that your idea is a complete disaster. But there's only one way to, learn in programming, like I said, because we're all just problem solvers, and that is to make the mistakes yourself and to be persistent and overcome that fear, that dread, and and being scared. So going back to how I got into um, JavaScript, that was, um, my thinking is much more what I like to call a, a tactile spatial thinker, And working in Java and Python was just too text-oriented for me. I needed to be able to visually debug what was happening. I needed to see what was happening. I needed to have um, an immediate response to what was happening. And I knew enough HTML, and JavaScript was the fastest route to taking the ideas and the experiments I had, throwing them up in a browser, and visually seeing by outputting the JavaScript to a web page what was happening and what was going on. So I, I want to actually do a quick throw out, which I'll mention later to Brett Victor. Brett Victor, if you haven't watched his work, is incredible. He takes programming and makes it um, responsive. I, I don't know how to word it, but but as you're writing your code, you get the feedback of what you've written. So you're able to debug and fix things a lot faster. For me, JavaScript was that compared to things like Java and Python right? Or, or C++ or C. Since I already knew HTML, I knew how to put it out visually. And since then HTML was driven by JavaScript, I was getting into JavaScript. But more arguably, right? The, f- the future of, I think, programming, weirdly enough, is in JavaScript. Not only because we have seen the mass explosion of JavaScript with Node.js and its ubiquity and its growth over the last uh, five years. Because um, I was working on these things before that happened, but it's also an open standard, right? So that is really important to the future of any industry, not just science and mathematics and the tech industry, but whether that be engineering, like Elon Musk with Tesla, like opened up his patents. Um, then you know, there's the whole other discussion and philosophy about whether Monsanto can patent a genetic code right? Like, is life, is DNA patentable? Or should those things be open source and available to all? So not only is JavaScript and the web open by default, it also happens to be coupled with the most powerful publication medium of all time, the internet. And with those, you know, three things combined, (laughs) once you start doing JavaScript, no matter its quirks, it is irresistible because the opportunity is incredible. And you just have to stick through through all of the bad, weird, depressing things and and the hard problems and the, the bugs. If you're persistent, you can come out the other side and, and see um, the results of your work and the future that's being built.
0: I heard a lot about JavaScript in there, but I don't know if we actually got your... Uh, what, what what were you doing and and oh okay so JavaScript here. Good point. Okay, so I, I liked what you were saying, and I yeah. agree with you. <laughs> I, I sometimes get lost in the excitement
1: of the future that I I, I forget to go back to it. Answer no, the question itself. So right, so I'm going to rewind. Um, which is, I was working on math. I knew I needed to learn how to code. I got into coding, but Java and Python. Uh, didn't allow me to debug or have a tactile spatial way of thinking. So I got into JavaScript because I could get a faster feedback loop with you know HTML and seeing what was going on. And I continued because of the excitement of that um, platform. But more importantly, um, how I got sidetracked away from more of my mathematical thinking is I was thinking, well, OK, programming pays building website pays. So I picked up some freelance jobs and I would build websites for people. Um, I'd sit down with the client. I'd spend an, an entire day making sure I knew exactly what they want, getting all the requirements and the specs out. And then I'd spend a week building that. But of course, as every freelancing story goes, you come back with exactly what you'd agreed upon that you've now built. And then they're like, oh, now that I see it, I want to change X and Y and Z, and I'm just thinking this entire time, like, oh my goodness. Like, yes, I can change those things, but you don't understand how CSS works. You can't just move something from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. You have to, like, rewrite the entire CSS architecture that you've built. Like, you have to to redo everything. So, I'm thinking this is a nightmare to just get a couple boxes to print out to the screen. This should be easier. And I took that pain point of mine and decided to turn it into the collaborative web design tool, which is we should be able to build websites with the same type of power and flexibility as code itself, but in a more, um, a more immediate and direct way. I think what Brett Victor calls, um, direct manipulation. So I started experimenting with this idea called Excelsior, which is basically like video game controls for web development, right? Or video game controls for Photoshop. Think of the power that Photoshop would have if you could combine it with like, you know, if you're playing Halo, you're running across the map, you're able to, while running look in one direction while zooming in and shoot your sniper across the map and get a headshot, right? Like, like the amount of talent, precision and skill, the amount of combination of things is, is very, is a lot of finesse. So why don't we have that same type of capabilities and tools like Photoshop, where I want to do these things that I want to have more control. So that was kind of the idea behind Excelsior. But then the next problem was the collaborative part, right? If Two people are editing the same HTML at the same time on separate computers. Well, what happens when there's latency between their computers? Let's say they're on the opposite sides of the world, and it takes like two seconds for that edit to go to the other side, and they're both editing the same element at the same time. You get a conflict, and how do you resolve those conflicts? So that's where then I started exploring kind of more of my mathematical side again in JavaScript with this collaborative web design tool to solve my my design problems that I had grown into from the pain points that I had with um, the clients from starting uh, freelance because programming pays better than being a mathematician. So now I'm back into the mathematics side of the equation and I'll, I'll stop there from from my rant.
0: <laughs> no, that's really interesting because I mean, I find that a lot of people, they get into programming for one of two reasons. Either they think it's going to be interesting, or more likely, they have some problem they think they're going to want to solve, and so they get in and they try and solve it. And it sounds like that's kind of the, the direction that you got into, but uh, yeah, so you had this problem, you decided to solve it, um, you know, you you had some things that you wanted to learn, and uh, yeah, you, you just kind of went from there and got involved and got excited about what you could do with it.
1: Yes. And I think there's a really important note there, which is what you didn't say. Programming has become attractive lately just as a career because it makes a lot of money. And this is where I'm going to tie it back in with the problem solving thing. I. I don't recommend to anybody out there listening, if you're getting into programming just because you think you're going to make a lot of money, you're going to have a very depressed life <laughs> because you're going to get stuck debugging something for hours on end. And this is going back to um, the whole persistence things, which is the frustrating thing is once you've solved that problem, that you've debugged for hours on end, you do get the reward but that reward it only lasts like thirty seconds. You get this, like, oh my goodness, that's the solution! I, all oh, it all makes sense now. Yay, I've solved the world! And then two seconds later, you have another bug, right? And so, if you're getting into programming just because it's it's financially uh, incentive, you you gotta have something driving you more than just the money, or else you're going to be Stuck in a lot of debugging, a lot of persistence and a lot of depression, and ultimately money's not worth that. So to people who are trying and are getting into programming, yes, take that idea that you have, take that that passion or the problem or the frustration they've that had that's driven you to get into programming, and don't lose sight of that, especially don't lose sight of that in the advent of all the other tools and frameworks and hypes that the community likes to talk about. Those things are exciting, but don't lose or forfeit your own passion for those things because ultimately that problem that you have or that bug that you're trying to fix, you need to persevere through and and overcome that. And, and that ability to be able to problem solve winds up being the most vital skill to programming, but also... You need to have that be driven by something more um, than just programming or just money by itself. So keep that determination and don't lose
0: hope to that. Let's pause for a moment to talk about our sponsor, Taurus. Taurus is a new tool for managing and securing the secret information that allows your app to run. You know the stuff, passwords, API keys, database credentials, all the stuff that gives access to the private stuff that you don't want anybody to touch except for your application in specific ways. Taurus provides a convenient way to store all this information in the cloud, and they can't access it because it's encrypted with material derived from your password, which which is never transmitted to their server. So it's secured from them, from everybody else, but accessible to you. This means only the servers, development machines, and applications you've allowed can access the information. So make secrets management headaches a thing of the past, and check out Taurus today. You can find them at devchat.tv slash Taurus. That's devchat.tv slash T-O-R-U-S. You know, it's it's funny that just the things that you're talking about here where it's, you know, you have that passion, that drive, that thing that you want. And uh, it's true in life, too, where, um, you know, something doesn't go the way you want it to. And if you don't have your eye on where you want that to get you in life, then it's really hard sometimes to motivate yourself to get up and go, go after it. And, uh, you know... In programming, yeah, it's debugging the same bug for the umpteenth time because there's something else causing it, um, you know. Or you know, as your, as an entrepreneur, I've talked to dozens of entrepreneurs, um, and every single one of them had some slump, some slowdown, some some challenge that that hung them up, and it was that vision, you know, it's going to help people in this way, or. You know, we're going to be able to do these kinds of things. Um, it was almost never we're going to make a million dollars that motivated them. It was all of those other things, all of those other payoffs that they were looking for out of life and out of the, the product that they were putting together.
1: Absolutely. And I want to take that note and talk about just this year in general and then also share some uh, stories specifically in programming. And talk about burnout. Uh, first off, which is just personally in life, like this year has been really rough for me, and I also know it's been really tough for a lot of other people. Um, like I'm, I'm open to sharing this, but my family lost two cousins this year, and we've never lost any cousins in my entire life. So it, I don't just mean rough or tough necessarily, and it, it's been a downer year or it's been a tough year, but also that there seems to be a lot of. Uh, death or destruction that has happened. And the, the the hopeful twist I want to put on that is is hopefully that means it's a year of recycling. Um, not that we aren't supposed to mourn and grieve the sad things that have happened, but hopefully that means we can look forward to better years to come. Um, So I just want to reach out to anybody that's in a dark place or is burnt out right now. I was burnt out earlier this year. It's really tough and rough that kind of like with death and taxes, I'd argue burnout is one of those things that's just constant in life. Now that doesn't mean um, your emotions aren't valid. It means even more so that your emotions are valid, but don't let it grip you. Don't let it take you over because while it's sad and it's depressing and it's a dark place for the soul, it's one of those things in life that we have to overcome and we have to have the courage and the persistence, like with debugging uh, in life itself. So, I, I think those are really strong words, Chuck. And I want to really encourage other people in life to maybe this is your first time through burnout, maybe this is your first time that you have a family member or a friend who's died. I, I don't know what it is in your life, but. There's probably something that you can relate to this year that's been really, really rough for a lot of people. Um, so I just want to encourage people, have persistence and, and pull through. Uh, now to get back to more of the programming side, I, I have been working through this problem I've been having in code, which I call the the orphan child unsubscribed from table problem. I, I know that doesn't make any sense to probably anybody, but you used it's a
0: lot of words there. But.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, Cause I don't know how to explain it. Cause, um, that's just the label I've put to it. And I've been struggling with this problem for like three months now, trying to figure out how to solve it. Three months is a long time to be working on a single problem that you're trying to fix. But just two days ago, I had a breakthrough and so many times in the two months, two and a half months before that, right? Like I'm thinking if I haven't solved the problem yet, there can't possibly be a solution. So it's so easy to get discouraged with a problem that's just taking so long to solve. But if you keep on chipping away at it slowly and slowly, over time, you'll eventually have a breakthrough. And that applies to life, that applies to debugging, that applies to code, that applies to your business, that applies to basically most things in life. Hey, it even applies to dating. It's a lot of times just a number game. If you keep on persevering, keep on putting yourself out there at the cost and the risk and potentially mockery that others might you know, hate you for, at some point those things are gonna start picking up. So, yeah, my- encouragement.
0: And I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it really happened, but um, there was a student that showed up to class late. Everybody had left. There was a, uh, there was a problem on the, on the chalkboard, so he wrote down the problem, went, went home and solved it, and then uh, came back and turned in his solution to the problem. And it turned out that uh, the professor had written it on the board as an example of one of the infamously unsolvable math problems. And the student had just, you know, just went home and figured it out. And, uh, you know, sometimes it just takes a different perspective. You know, so these PhDs are thinking about all the ways you solve a problem. And it's an undergraduate or a graduate student who walks in, doesn't realize that it's impossible, and then goes and does it. And, you know, people had been working on that problem for 10, 15, 20, 50. I mean, who knows how long, right? And, you know, ultimately, yeah, it's it's just keep talking about it, you keep working on it, and eventually, you know, somebody's brain will come up with a solution for it.
1: That is such a great and encouraging story. I might be biased because I, I like the mathematics side, but I'm going to immediately apply that to what you said, the, the newcomer thinking. Uh, all the novices out there that are getting into programming, the pain point that you might be having might not be your fault. It might be all of us crazy people who have been in the industry too long that are just running in circles. So, so you're a novice, and you come with an outsider thinking that is unique and can be very powerful. So,
0: yeah. we we're doing it that way in JavaScript because that's the way we did it in Ruby or Java, and that's the way we always did it in C. And yeah, so true. So I'm going to get to that next question, and that is, uh, what have you contributed to JavaScript that people might have heard of? I know you're working on Gun DB. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before that, or should we just jump right into what Gun is?
1: There's several other projects open source projects that I have that have like up to about 300 stars. But I think most people have heard of me because of my open source Firebase uh, gun. So I I think it's better to just focus in on that. All right, let's do it. So two years ago, like I said, well, four years ago, I had the problems with my my previous startup servers crashing in the middle of the night and me thinking, okay, we we have to be able to do something better than that. But two years ago, I had this interesting um, realization that The debate between SQL and NoSQL is, again, one of those um, kind of closed-minded industry loopholes. There is technology that blows that question out of the water, just makes it completely irrelevant, which is graph data. Uh, Neo4j is a very popular graph database, um, and graph data really wound up hitting Pain point I had with my collaborative web design tool because you think, well, a web design tool is building a web page. A web page is a document, so therefore you should use MongoDB or something like that because it's a document database. And that's what I used, right? It made sense. Use the right tool for um, the right problem. But I eventually discovered that, well, well, if you're building web pages, you want to have the same header and the same footer and the same sidebar shared across different pages. That's very relational. That's very SQL like. So then I got in this this like confusion of like, wait a second, I I can't switch back to SQL databases because everything that people do in our system is completely dynamic. There's no schema to it. They're building just like web pages. It could be anything, right? Like I can't lock them into a certain template. Uh, At the same time, now I need something more powerful than just documents. What do I do? And then one of my friends told me about Neo4j and graph databases. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I should have just gone back to my math days because graph theory is like so foundational to so many different things. I was like, okay, a graph database makes sense because a graph database allows you to have both document-based data but also relational-based data. You can have documents that have relations to other documents. You can have documents that have relations back to themselves you can have circular references and then this got me clicking even more that like this looks a lot like just a regular old javascript object a regular old javascript object can point to other javascript objects in memory it can point back to itself it can have structured depth to it It, it, like why is that not the default uh, database and data structure that we use. So that was kind of uh, the two years ago, like the kicker, like, okay, I need, to, I need to throw off these old databases, build a new database. And I really, really loved Firebase at the time, because they introduced this idea of having push-based real-time updates that were like so cool, right, so cool. You could go to a hackathon, build something with Firebase, and like 24 hours later, impress the judges and you know underneath it's because the database is pushing data out to you there's real-time updates that should just be the default way things are so i took what i feel are the best features of all the databases out there that then targeted somebody like me just a front end web developer that's a complete novice and tried to combine those pieces together in a way that wouldn't crash at 3 a.m so the last piece here, other than real-time updates, um, graph data structures, is the idea of being offline first and also being peer-to-peer decentralized. Uh, I hate jargon words, so I'm just going to throw those away and say what they actually mean. Which is, when I'm in San Francisco, I go through the subway. The subway is underground. It doesn't have connection, cell connection to the internet. But I'm checking Twitter, or I'm writing like a tweet or a blog post or something. When I try and hit send, or if I try and write that message, because I'm disconnected from the internet, nothing works. And that's super frustrating because that means I can't get work done. If I jump on an airplane and I'm flying out to a conference, I want to be able to work on my presentation while on the airplane. But if I'm using a a web app to build those things, and I prefer web apps over desktop apps there's this problem where it doesn't work if it's disconnected. So I want my collaborative web design tool, Excelsior, I want any application that anybody builds to just work by default and then sync up later um, when the connection is available. However, uh, that I'm actually... St- put- I'm
0: going to stop you, yes. Mark. Um, yeah. You know, because a lot of this is just the technical um, stuff behind Gun, and I think we talked about that in the JavaScript Jabber episode. And what I'm really trying to capture here is the story. You
1: know, absolutely. So so instead of
0: this is how gun works or here's the problem it's trying to solve, I'm gonna refer everybody back to episode two thirty two. And instead what I'd really like to hear is okay, so you decide to build gun, you have this um this system that solves these particular problems. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure people were telling you you want to build a database in JavaScript. And then you probably ran into some hiccups or some problems down the road. Um, and, I, and so I'm curious, like, what's that story? What, what's thank Mark's story within the context of GUN?
1: Yeah, thank sense? you for clarifying. Yes, yes. that. Uh, thank you. That makes a lot more sense. So using JavaScript was uh, kind of making fun of ourselves. JavaScript isn't the best of languages. Uh, it crashes a lot. So one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on JavaScript was because I wanted a problematic environment. I wanted to put myself in a novice's shoe, which I'd argue is my own shoes, and make it work there. And that was challenging. It's more challenging recently as I've been getting into performance. So if you want, um, that's probably the most practical JavaScript-specific stuff. Of the hiccups that I've had. Um, can, I, can I jump into that?
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: So, somebody tried to build um, a browser based game with Gun as the engine for it. I would have never recommended using a database as a game engine, but they did it. And I was like, okay, that's really cool. What would I need to do to make that work? Because when they did that, I found all these performance problems in Gun. Um, so I started investigating and profiling like the V8 engine compared to Firefox engine and testing my own code to see what I was doing wrong. And this was really, really insightful to me as a, as a programmer, and specifically as a JavaScript programmer, because I've been writing JavaScript for like seven years or more now. And I've never really actually sat down and taken my code and put it through performance benchmarks. But When I did, I discovered so many things I never knew about, which is a lot of the things I'd been taught to use anonymous functions, callback style, stuff like that, are actually really bad for performances. And, And here's a really simple reason why. If you have an anonymous function, aka a callback to something, the JavaScript engine has to create the entire context for that function. And then it has to call that function and pass that context in to the functions. That way you can um, you can use a variable that is in the outer scope inside the inner scope. Um, it, programmers in JavaScript who have written JavaScript enough know what I'm talking about when I'm dealing with scope. Uh, for those that are still learning JavaScript, I recommend um, Googling that and, and taking some courses practicing what scope is. So that really slows down the engine because it has to do all this extra work. But more problematic is that every single time it runs that same code again, because it's an anonymous function, it has to recreate that scope every single time. So you don't get any um, performance benefits. However, if you have a named function that is not an anonymous function, that's not inside like a callback, if it's just a named function that's declared in advance, the JavaScript engine is actually able to optimize for calling that function. But there is this problem. Once you have a named function, you no longer have uh, the ability to access the outer scope because your named function is now outside of the context that you were using. So you, you then have to figure out how to manually pass Um, the scope or context. I don't recommend to most people out there to actually make this performance optimization if that code that is running just happens like on click once. But as a programmer, if you imagined having some robot click that button a million times a second, Uh, you wind up learning things about your coding, your coding style, and kind of what is proclaimed as supposedly being industry best practices that just don't add up to the actual numbers and the actual benchmarks. So if people want a challenge for themselves is take your code, throw it through some performance benchmarks, and start finding out why things slow down or why you're not getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of operations a second. It's it's a very interesting road to explore. And again, I've been programming for like at least seven years and I didn't know these things. So it taught me a lot about programming and about JavaScript specifically.
0: Very cool. Now, uh, the last question I have is what are you working on now? Is it gun or do you have other projects that you're focused on?
1: Still GUN, however, we've been spinning out some several other interesting projects. One of them is a distributed testing framework called Panic. I want to make sure that GUN works correctly, but in order to know if GUN behaves correctly, you actually have to simulate a real-world environment where there's multiple computers connected to a server or many servers, and they're all trying to synchronize data, kind of like uh, Firebase does. So that posed a new problem, which is, I know how to write tests now. I know how to use Mocha. I know how to do test-driven development. But how do you write tests that fundamentally are running across different machines to make sure that your web application as a whole is behaving the way that you want it to?
0: So Now, I've seen systems like this that do load testing. So they just fire up a whole bunch of threads and they beat on the machine. You're talking about something different where it's actually kind of a coordinated attack?
1: Yes, So it it can be used for load testing. However, we weren't building originally specifically for load testing. We were building it to verify the correctness of the system, to make sure that if Alice saves some data on her browser, that it shows up on Bob's browser, right? right? Um, Now, you can use the system to do load testing. In fact, the most recent Ah, uh, test that we built with Panic was a load test because we're moving into releasing a production-ready version of Gun, and we want to make sure that it can withstand you know a bunch of processes that are just hammering away at it. Uh, so there, there is that aspect to it, which is why the tool is really cool because it makes it easier for you to do load testing, um, but it also lets you explore um, correctness tests, making sure that your web application behaves the way you expect, not in unit tests, but across different users' browsers. And that project is completely open source. Um, It's available on on a repo, and I'm really excited about it because I almost see it as as being a layer lower than a database itself because because it's a tool to test the database, and it's all written in JavaScript. Because to me, um, if I'm not testing things from where the end user is at in the browser, then the tests aren't as useful as as they could be. It's not going to catch the problems a user has. So that's, again, why JavaScript is so exciting for me.
0: Yeah, if I had to coin a term for that, I think I'd call it coordination testing.
1: Yes. Ooh. Hey, are have you heard that term before? Or are we like, uh Okay coordination testing i got to start throwing that word out on twitter
0: getting some uh i'm not some... trying to create a meme it's just <laughs> kind of the way i thought about it but anyway i'll, I'll follow up with a blog post saying uh,
1: chuck who coined the term coordination testing and then we'll start getting uh, you oh, as a thought go. leader as being coordination testing
0: are you still digging through log files to find errors and relying on users to tell you exactly what went wrong Raygun Crash Reporting monitors your web and mobile applications, collecting all error and crash events that are affecting your customers. Diagnostic information about the problem is made available to your entire team instantly, including which specific users of your application have been affected. There's no need for software errors to affect your users. Head to Raygun.com to see how Raygun can help you create better software. Anyway, we're out of time, so I'm going to push us over to Pix. Um, Do you have a few things that you want to shout out about for us? Yeah.
1: Yeah, three things. We just finished a a video explainer series on how cryptography works. Uh, So a shout out to that. You can check it out by going to our website, which is gun.js.org, and then scrolling down to explainers and clicking on um, data security cryptography. So if you've ever been curious what encryption and cryptography is, it's a great introduction to explaining the concepts. about uh, cryptography the second thing is what i mentioned earlier brett victor if you haven't heard about brett Brett victor if you haven't watched his talk called inventing the future i I actually forget the name of it look up brett victor because he's got some really inspirational stuff on what the future of programming looks like and then the third thing is i just inventing inventing on principle yeah i think you're right um Great talk, but also check out his other stuff. They all kind of relate. Um, It's just really exciting. So, yes, I think that is the the name of the talk. Thank you for clarifying that. And then the third thing is just, again, shout out to everybody out there that has survived 2016. Uh, It's been a rough year, and I just want to encourage people, again, have persistence. Keep on driving forward. Keep on persevering. It's hard but it'll pay off. So encouragement to people to just keep on persevering, whatever that is in life code
0: or not. All right. Um, I've got a couple of picks here that I'm going to uh, call out about. Uh, the first one is, um, and yeah, I'm going to show what a star star Wars fan I am, I guess, but uh, my wife and I went and saw rogue one on Saturday as we record this. Um, so it's December 19th. It'll, this episode will come out in a few weeks. But uh, I really enjoyed it. It was it a was pretty good movie. Um, it doesn't have the same nostalgia that the original Star Wars movies have. But I don't think any of them will just because I didn't grow up watching them. <laughs> so anyway, but other than that, I thought it was a, a well-done movie. Um, the second pick I have, my wife got me for my birthday, which was on Wednesday. Um, she got me the Sphero BB-8 which is kind of fun. And my one-year-old loves crawling around trying to catch it. (laughs) So, if I ever need to entertain her, then I can just sit on the couch with my phone and and have it run around, and it's pretty fun. Um, I haven't tried the feature yet where you watch um, Star Wars with BB-8. Sitting there, apparently, it beeps and stuff. So, anyway, I'm kind of curious to do that. But, anyway, it's supposed to do a whole bunch of cool stuff. And... From what I understand, you can also program the spheros. So I could actually program it to you know, move in a specific pattern. Or there's a light inside of the ball um, that makes up the base of BB-8. And uh, so you, I think you can get it to flash different colors and stuff. I know the regular spheros, which are just a ball, um, do all that stuff. So. Can you program it with JavaScript? I believe you can. I think you can use, um, what is it? Um, Johnny 5 or Cylon the JS. other ones. I think Johnny 5 does it too, but I, I know that Cylon JS does it. So. so you're saying the
1: future, a.k.a. Star Wars, science fiction is powered by JavaScript-enabled robots.
0: <laughs> yeah, there we go. One other thing I'm going to shout out about really quickly, and that is, um, as this comes out, I'll probably just be getting back from CES which used to stand for Consumer Electronics Show, but the the Consumer Electronics Association said it's just CES now. Anyway, it's where all the cool new gizmos and technologies show up and show off their stuff in Las Vegas. And so I will be posting a whole bunch of videos on YouTube if you're interested in any of that. Um, I'm going to be down there for four days. Uh, I'm going to try and at least spend most of my time getting stuff that you can write programs against, uh, with an API, be it mobile APIs or, uh, web APIs or whatever. So I might do some of the health enabled stuff that reports to a web service that you can access through an API, any of that. Um, and then I'm probably going to just, uh, do a lot of the g stuff. There are a whole bunch of companies showing up with like, uh, virtual reality and things like that. And so I'm kind of curious to see what the capabilities are there as well, even though I don't know how many of those systems are open. To development yet so um anyway if you're interested in any of kind of the upcoming cool stuff uh that will be coming out in the world of tvs or robots or any of that stuff then keep an eye on my youtube channel for that and uh that's all i've got so uh mark if people want to follow up see what you're doing um what what are the best places to do that
1: I'm really bad on Twitter, but you can follow me there. It's just Mark Nadal. Uh, the best way is probably to just subscribe to the gun repo or star it, because then I think you get notified. So that's pretty much where all my work winds up going to. And since I'm bad with Twitter, uh, check me out there. But realistically, you're going to get more updates um, from uh, what I work on directly.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. This has been a fun chat. And yeah, we'll, we'll put this out there and Let people enjoy it. It's been a great honor. Thanks
1: so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.